0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Seb Larson, and today we're joined by Professor Jeremy Suri of the University of Texas at Austin to discuss his book, Possible Presidency, published by Basic Books in 2017. Suri examined the long history of the U.S. Presidency to show how the office has changed over time, using several case studies with well-known presidents to illustrate ways that the office has evolved that make it increasingly difficult to function effectively. As the expectations around the president have grown, their inability to work has been hampered by limitation of the office, the constant demands on their attention, and the fear of overreacting to a situation making it worse. Dr. Surrey concludes by considering how the office might evolve to overcome these limitations. Dr. Suri, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, and how you came to
1: write this particular book. Sure. Uh, I I grew up in New York City. I'm the child of immigrants, actually, from India and from Russia. And um, I went to public school in New York City, and I always had a love of history. Uh, Ironically enough, I went to uh, public science and math school, Stuyvesant High School in New York City. And uh, history was not something emphasized there a lot, but uh, somehow I I kept my love of history. And um, really, when I got to college, when I went to Stanford, uh, I was exposed to historical scholarship. And one of the things I learned immediately was that history helps us to understand the development, not just of people, of biographies, um, but also of institutions, And that sometimes doing the biography of an institution can be as interesting as the biography of a person. And a lot of my work as a historian uh, since then has been really trying to understand how different institutions in American society have developed. I came to believe, after doing a number of other projects, that although many people, scholars and non-scholars, write about presidents and the presidency, the office, the institution, the nature of what it means to be president, irrespective of one's personality and ideology, uh, that has been insufficiently studied and insufficiently thought about. And major changes have occurred historically over time in what it means to be president. Um, but um, those changes are often elided by the, the language we use that makes things sound the same. And so my historical interest in the development of institutions came together uh, with my interest in the presidency, and, and that's sort of what got me to where I am now. And just just briefly for the listener, can you tell us uh, some of the other works you've published? Sure. So uh, my PhD dissertation and first book uh, was on the 1960s and early 70s, and it's called Power and Protest, that book, and it mm-hmm. examines why we saw protest movements in so many societies, U.S., Europe, and Asia, during the 1960s and 70s, from civil rights to new left activism to various other things, and um, uh, it looks to explain the rise of detente and the ways in which those protest movements changed uh, policy and politics within societies. Uh, my next book that I did was a an intellectual and an international biography of Henry Kissinger, looking in particular at his early life and the influence of his Jewish background and his experience during the Holocaust and the ways I argued uh, that his experience uh, watching the collapse of Weimar democracy led to his profound, I think almost sometimes reckless, um, disregard for democracy in later years when he was in a policymaking position. And uh, then I did a book on American nation building, looking at how Americans have thought about nation building. That's called Liberty's Surest Guardian. And uh, I've done a number of other projects, but this is the fourth really sort of big book that I've, that I've done, on the one on the presidency. And uh, as with all authors, the book you've written most recently is the one you're simultaneously most uh, excited about, but also the one you have the most trepidations about, too, because it's, it's the one you're, you're still getting feedback on. <laughs> right. Right. And
0: you haven't exactly tackled a small topic with this particular yeah. book, Impossible Presidency. So briefly, let's just start. What's the book about?
1: So the book is a biography of the institution uh, of, of the presidency. So uh, the idea is really to show how the institution has devolved, uh, evolved and evolved I guess, <laughs> uh, over time. And uh, the point of departure for the book is that the Founding Fathers, when they created this institution, they weren't even sure what they were doing. I I often say in talks about the book, if someone tells you they understand uh, the original intent of the presidency, they're lying to you, because there was no original intent. The Founding Fathers had many, many different views, many uncertainties. They were not in agreement. And Article 2 of the Constitution is is really actually an abstract, vague compromise among many points of view. So the book really tries to look at how the office, which began with uncertainty and began very small with limited powers, has come to be so powerful, so world historical, and so problematic uh, over time. And I use individuals, I look at particular presidents who I think were transformative, but I'm really using them as windows into the way the institution itself has changed and how we need to understand that history and perhaps rethink it today if we want a more effective and more uh, appropriate presidency.
0: And I, I, I just have to ask, what was it like writing this book in the age of Trump?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question. Um, I wrote most of the book. In fact, the book was entirely drafted before the 2016 election. Oh I sent the final, dra- the, well, not the final. I sent my final draft before receiving uh, detailed feedback from my editor and outside readers. I sent that to Basic Books, my publisher, October 31st, uh, <laughs> 2016. And I will tell you and your listeners, uh, I actually had a a conclusion, a concluding section that was on Hillary Clinton as the next president. I had to rewrite that, obviously, it still exists somewhere on my laptop. Um, And um, I I revised the book, obviously, uh, in the context of the election. Most of what I had written, most of the the, the historical uh, section of the book, the meat of the book, 90%, uh, not much change but certainly the framing a little bit. Uh, but what my editor said, which is interesting, is she always thought that the book was pointing to more of a crisis in the presidency than I myself recognized. And mm. so maybe the logic was taking me there and I was just refusing to see it until, until November of 2016.
0: So then is the election of Trump sort of an inevitable consequence or at least a likely consequence of, of the factors that you're looking at here?
1: Yes, I, I, I think that... Um, although there are many things that motivate voters to do what they do, and it's it's still somewhat unclear why 63 million people voted for Donald Trump, there is one thing that seems to unite Trump voters and still unite them. Um, A sense that our institutions, our powerful institutions, our democratic institutions are out of touch with a lot of people. And that's one of the points I'm making in the book, that over time, the presidency has grown more and more powerful, but its power has dislodged it from its rootedness in certain values and rootedness in certain needs of our society. So we have power serving the interests of power rather than serving the interests of people and democracy. And and it, it appears that Donald Trump is not solving this problem at all. But I think his voters were upset about this problem. I think that's what motivated them. And uh, Trump's inability to grapple with this problem, no matter what you think of him, his inability to grapple with it shows that it's a deeper problem that that one person can't fix just by virtue of Believing they're going to drain the swamp, whatever that means.
0: Okay, so let's dive into the meat of the book. And before I, I go into chapters, I'm just curious: how
1: did you research this book? So uh, I love doing research. I should have said this earlier. One of the things that, that that drew me to being a historian, I think one of the things that draws most people to history as a discipline uh, is that we get to marinate ourselves in. Uh, fun, original materials. We go to archives. We look at what people wrote. uh, We read their mail. We read their diaries. We love if people have diaries. Um, And I've always enjoyed that. It's almost therapeutic, I have to say. And um, writing this book, uh, I I had the great joy, the great fortune to marinate myself in the works and the writings of various presidents who I thought (laughs) had played a transformative role in the office of the presidency.
0: Wonderful. So let's start at the beginning of the book then. Where do you look where where do you look to first and how do you structure this book?
1: (coughs) Right. So I begin at the very beginning, which is where did the presidency come from? How did we get a presidency? What happened at the Constitutional Convention? And what I try to show (coughs) excuse me, which I just mentioned, is that the office of the presidency comes out of a very unique problem the founding fathers have. Um, As everyone knows, they were against kings. I love uh, Thomas Paine on this, by the way. Thomas Paine's view is that, he writes this in common sense, um, the child of a baker, he says, is no more likely to be a fool than the child of a king, and the child of the baker is likely to be someone I would like more. (laughs) So I've always said to people that the foundation of democracy in in the American cadence is an opposition or skepticism toward nepotism. They don't want kings, the founders, but they recognize that American society is by definition deeply divided. Um, The Catholics in Maryland uh, refuse to even believe that the high Protestants in Massachusetts have any claim on Christianity. (laughs) And uh, the Quakers think they're all out of their minds, the Quakers in Pennsylvania. We are, we are more deeply divided as a society in the 18th century than we are today. Uh, people in Georgia can't even understand what people in Massachusetts are saying. Uh, maybe it's still true. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so the founders recognize that we can't have a king, but we must have someone who stands above party, someone who stands above region, someone who stands above what uh, James Madison calls faction, someone who can unite the country, someone who can speak for the country as a whole. That had traditionally been what kings had done. Uh, if we're not going to have a hereditary figure, we have to find some figure who we choose for this office. So they invent this notion of an executive. It's interesting. I, I show this in the book. The word executive was not used as a noun until this time. It was mm-hmm. only an adjective. You had executive functions. But the notion of an executive, a secular figure who was chosen by the people and would serve the interests of the broader public and do that out of merit and virtue coming from the people to lead the people themselves. Um, that's the office they're trying to create. And, and, and that's what this presidency is supposed to be. And that's why we have all these odd features to it, that the president's supposed to be selected by the people, but not really directly selected, because he's not supposed to be their favorite guy. He's supposed to be the person who actually can bring them together. There's supposed to be some basis in each of the states of the presidency, but, but it's not a, a creature of the states. And the founders, most of them, believe the president shouldn't be part of parties. So that's where this office comes from. They don't really know how it's going to work. Um, most of the founders believed that a Congress would end up choosing the president because they couldn't imagine that any one figure would get enough electoral votes. They figured the largest states would each nominate a favorite son, as they were called, that the electoral college would be divided. And as we know, if you have uh, four Uh, people with electoral votes. It goes to the Congress to choose. That's only happened three times in our history, but they they actually expected it to happen more often. So um, the office evolves out of an urge to have this new kind of executive. um, And we figure it out as we go. This is a really big point. Um, The presidency is not made by the constitution. It's made by our historical evolution as a society.
0: And expectations and precedent, which is why I think Washington comes across as so
1: significant in this narrative. Give us a little bit more about Washington. Sure. Um, uh, Washington to me remains uh, one of the most fascinating figures, and everyone knows a little bit about him, but few people know enough uh, about George Washington. Um, he had a sense that this office really had to unite the country. He had a deep sense of this because, as the leader of American Revolutionary Forces, he saw how divided and dysfunctional the Continental Congress was. I, I like to tell people that if there's anyone who understood and would understand the dysfunctionalism of American Congress today, it would be George Washington, because he dealt with this. He dealt with an even more dysfunctional Congress than the Continental Congress. Um, no state wanted to pay their dues to the revolution. They didn't want to put up um, their soldiers. Everyone was looking out for their own provincial interests. You had gerrymandered districts. You had all these issues. So um, he believed deeply that this had to be the case. And he. Uh, didn't fall into this role. He crafted himself as that figure, created an image of himself that way. Um, and when he was in office, he was very self-conscious about seeing the office not as a policymaking office, but as a uniting office for the country, truly being a father figure in his own eyes and the eyes of many of his people. And then also creating precedents. He had a very clear sense that what he was doing was actually more important for the precedent it created than for um, what it did in the short run. Um, And and his ability to think in those terms, I think, shows he had a historical sensibility that very few figures have. Um, He creates the presidency because he uh, creates some of the early rituals and he creates two important traditions which carry forward. One is that the president is to speak for and represent all Americans, not just those Americans who voted for him, also those Americans who did not vote for him. And two, that the president is to invest uh, the resources of the federal government in projects that serve the nation as a whole. And uh, that's, of course, why he adopts Hamilton's economic plan. It's why he calls for a university system in the United States. Um, He's looking to what he calls infrastructures of nationhood, things that will benefit the country as a whole.
0: So then the next figure that we jump to, Washington sets these precedents. The next president you discuss is Jackson. Jackson is, is a sea change. What is the change?
1: Washington believed um, that uh, the presidency should be an office that brings to get, together the best people and speaks from, from the people, but in a sense, speaks out of the best of their virtues. And Jackson um, really saw the office more as needing to reach out to those who had been left out, particularly those on the frontier. So Jackson is part of a generation of Americans who are immigrants who um, move west in search of land, move to Tennessee and places like that. And uh, before Jackson, all of the prior presidents are from Virginia or Massachusetts, and they do represent a kind of high society in the United States. And um, Jackson wants to connect the presidency to ordinary people. More. That's why we often call him a populist. though so That term is often misused. It's also why he wants the office to be uh, more powerful. He wants the office to help people help those who have been left out, particularly on the frontier, and help them to eliminate barriers to their prosperity on the frontier. And the biggest barrier to the prosperity of frontier settlers in uh, Jackson's time are Native Americans, Indians. And this is why he becomes uh, uh, close to a genocidal president in his use of uh, federal power, often against uh, the rulings of the Supreme Court, to move Indians off the land and serve the interests. What he sees is the broader, deeper interests of settlers um, in the West. At the same time though, he is an arch advocate of union and has a deep falling out, uh, and you can see this is the long origins of the Civil War, with people like John C. Calhoun and others who are arguing that the presidency should be less powerful and the states should have more control over decisions. Jackson's view is the president needs to be more powerful Bring the country together and help use his power to serve the interests of those outside of the traditionally powerful areas of the country. Uh, so he's a union advocate, but an advocate for Western frontier interests. And he turns the presidency into this rougher, more frontier institution that, that we come to resent that we come to recognize as a more active presidency thereafter.
0: You know, it's interesting. Uh, you just mentioned in discussing Washington and the expectations of the founders that they believed that most elections for the presidency would be resolved in the House of Representatives. Jackson loses an election in 1824 on that on that very um, system, and he thereafter seems to have a very combative relationship with the legislature. Does this sort of signal a new role with the executive branch in terms of the legislative branch going forward?
1: Yes, and it's a great point and something I talk about in my chapter. I mean, he, um, Jackson comes to believe that he represents uh, the people more than members of Congress do. Washington believed that he represented the people in a different way, but he did not believe Congress was unrepresentative. Jackson argues that President, that the Congress, excuse me, under the leadership of Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and these these titans, these figures who we revere, who we sometimes say we wish we'd have back in Congress today, that these um, these figures are representing provincial elites. They're not representing the country as a whole, and that he's the only figure that does that. And this is his argument for, as you say, taking on and and, and trying at times to undermine Congress. This is his argument for also. Critiquing the Supreme Court. He says he has the right to read the law his way because he speaks for the people. And this emphasis upon what he will call popular sovereignty um, is a way of strengthening the presidency, but it's also, as you say, a way of disempowering those institutions he believes are less representative and serving other, what he believes are corrupt interests, like the corrupt interests he believes initially denied him the presidency when he ran against John Quincy Adams in 1824 so that's Jackson where does Lincoln fit into this well my gosh Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln and this is another reason I love being a historian Abraham Lincoln is one of those figures you can never read enough of I really believe that Um, the more you read the more you revere the more you see in this man Um, he had two years of education I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this has had more education than Abraham Lincoln but yet, he's not only one of the great um, writers uh, as a president; he's one of the great writers in American history. Full stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you had to put together your list of top five or ten, he'd be in it, along with Mark Twain and Nathaniel Hawthorne and um, Hemingway and others. Uh, he's up there. I mean, he's Faulkner. He's he's up there with 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 them. And what he does, Lincoln is he fuses, in many ways, uh, the best of Washington and the best of Jackson. And there's probably more Jackson than Washington, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, in Lincoln. He grows up uh, in a border state in Kentucky. um, And he grows up as a poor white boy um, without uh, without much family support. He uh, doesn't own land. He doesn't own slaves um and he becomes committed very early on uh to this thing called capitalism this notion that creating a market society where people are actually compensated for their work and incentivized to do work will benefit people like him who's able bodied and bright uh but not privileged and not having access to, to capital of his own that the capital should flow to the work rather than the capital flowing to family or inheritance or things of that sort and um he uses the English language to not simply advocate for that position, but to redefine American uh, identity along those lines. That's what the Gettysburg Address is about. That's what the Second Inaugural is about. That's what his Cooper Union Address, when says bill coming out as a candidate in New York City, uh, is all about. Uh, Lincoln's argument is that the presidency – must create opportunity. This is what the Republican Party is about. Free labor, free soil, free men. The presidency must not set policy for the country, but must create a guiding hand for the expansion of industrial capitalism, which for a poor white boy from a border state is the expansion of economic opportunity. That men like Lincoln can get educated as he couldn't. That men like Lincoln can own land as he couldn't for a long time, and that men like Lincoln can be paid for their work as many slaves weren't, and as quite frankly, poor whites like Lincoln weren't paid very much. So that's the Republican Party, free labor, free soil, free men. And that's what Lincoln is bringing forward. During the course of the Civil War, he not only uh, oversees very in a very difficult way the defeat of the Confederacy and, and the slavery with the 13th Amendment, um, more than that, he he greatly expands the role of the president as this guiding figure for industrial capitalist development. I talk about this in my chapter, and he gives beautiful language to this: the creation of a public university system. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are very few things the United States does before everyone else. We like to think we do all the time. We usually don't. The one exception is a public university system we create with the Morrill Land Grant Act of eighteen sixty-two, the first true public university system, the land grant system. Um, Lincoln also creates another Homestead Act that provides uh, access to land for immigrants. Uh, in fact, uh, you did not have to be a citizen to be a landowner. It's amazing, it provides uh, it provides ownership and a stake in society, an opportunity for Mexican and German and Irish and other uh, immigrants in places like Oklahoma. You know, why else would they have to go to Oklahoma except to get free land, I guess. Um, and then third, um, he creates the first federal subsidy system for the railroads. And that's how we get the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, soon after his death. Uh, and we become, by that time, the largest single integrated market uh, in the world. We still are. And uh, if there's one thing that's the basis for our development as a world power, it's that. Uh, our foreign policy has often been very bad, <laughs> but we've just had a lot of resources. And we've had a lot of resources because we have a lot of land that's integrated into a single market in the way other resource-rich areas aren't, and uh, that that's all the vision that he has, and that's what he does as president. I, I argue he's, he's a poet as president, but he's also a CEO. He's pursuing an economic plan for capitalist development,
0: mm-hmm. and, and
1: that's what Reconstruction is in its best days. Reconstruction fails more than it succeeds, but in its best moments, Reconstruction is about trying to bring Northern-style capitalism to the South, which would provide some African-Americans with access to resources, uh, exactly what Booker T. Washington will later talk about at Tuskegee, uh, that's within a Republican framework. It's within the framework of providing opportunity and capitalist development. So he, he is the capitalist president.
0: So the, your point about industrial capitalism, I, I think, is interesting. You know, there's, there's a tendency to write off every president that comes after Lincoln until about Teddy Roosevelt, which is where you pick up again, uh, as weak. And yet, I think you, what you're saying here is that there's actually a much stronger presidency post-Lincoln that
1: Lincoln helps to inaugurate. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? A- absolutely. Um, so after Lincoln's presidency and then after the presidency of Andrew Johnson, uh, the stormy presidency of Andrew, Andrew Johnson, uh, there's a concerted effort, perhaps a conspiracy among um, Southern co- former Confederate Democrats and Northern Radical Republicans to limit the power of the presidency uh, through Congress. Because members of both of those parties in Congress believe that the more moderate Republican figures who are chosen as president, people like Rutherford B. Hayes, Ulysses Grant, um, they they believe that they're not sufficiently one or the other. They're not sufficiently radical for the Radical Republicans. They're not sufficiently uh, favorable to the Confederates for the For the Democrats. So, Congress acts to stymie the president in ways we've seen in our own society the last decade or so. But that limits presidential power in legislation. It does not limit a lot of presidential power in other areas. Uh, Presidents move toward closer collaboration and conjunction uh, with different business and industrial interests, seeing that as their job, seeing that as a lucrative source of resources and uh, and seeing that as a way to leave an, a lasting imprint uh, upon the country. And that's why the Gilded Age is largely known from Ulysses Grant forward as this period of uh, corruption, this period of big business, corporate dominance, Uh, And that's the world presidents operate and they have enormous power in that area because they are able to, through executive authority, control how land is used in the country and land is the greatest resource the country has at the time, it's what we also have in surplus. And so the allocation of land, uh, the allocation of um, access to land and access to resources and the conjunction or collaboration between business interests and the presidency. Uh, make the president as the arch-industrial capitalist leader of the country a much more powerful figure in this period. Interesting. And I have just one last question about Lincoln, then we should move on. You
0: know, Washington is somebody who's so acutely aware of precedent, you know, to an almost sort of superhuman degree. I can't really think of that many other people who seem to operate, maybe De Gaulle, with an awareness of how history and society is looking at them. Do you ever get the sense that Lincoln was doing that? Because as as he prosecutes the Civil War, he takes steps that put him directly into conflict with the courts, even on occasion wing members of his own party. And yet he – is he doing so because he, needs, he feels he needs to fight the war and it's an extraordinary set of circumstances or is he doing so because that's his belief of what a, just a president should be? relatively regardless of
1: circumstance I, I, it's a great question i think lincoln was acutely aware of precedent but i think he thought about it differently from washington uh, i i think washington believed he was creating and i think he succeeded in this in creating precedent it, it kind of behavioral precedents what he did would be how he was judged and how he held himself he was a symbolic precedent creator and a behavioral precedent creator Lincoln really relied on language. Lincoln was living through such a difficult period of challenges, the Civil War, of course, at the top of the list. And he knew he had to cut corners so many times and do things that he himself said he would not have been comfortable doing in other circumstances. Uh, I love his his statement about this. I quote in the book where he talks about how uh, a surgeon would sometimes uh, cut off a hand to save a life, but you wouldn't cut off the life to save the hand. And he thought sometimes he was cutting off hands Uh, The um, restrictions on habeas corpus, for example, things of that sort that other other circumstances he would have been opposed to, but in these emergency circumstances had to be done. He did not want that to be precedent. So he did not always want his behaviors to be precedent setting. He wanted his language. He wanted his explanation of what he was doing. He wanted the larger rationale, the larger purpose. And and that's what he succeeded in doing in providing us the words, the words we still use. How often do you hear people say it's the job of a leader to bring out the better angels in our nature or to find the mystic cords of memory that connect our country or define democracy as government of the people, by the people, for the people? He didn't really rule that way. His administration was really not government of the people, by the people, for the people. But that's what the war was about. And so he was creating precedent in the language and narrative that we would – that we still continue to rely on to define who we are.
0: Wonderful. And, and and yeah, I see what you mean about Lincoln being so tremendously fun to study because Lincoln's language is so a, a tremendously fun to live inside of. Absolutely. And it's it, it sort of it, – it, it's everlasting in a certain mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's still remarkably accessible in a way that most of his peers, and you, know, you bring up in the book, Jefferson Davis was better educated and yet a worse public speaker. I I've I can't think of a single time in my life
1: that somebody's quoted Jeff Davis at me. right. Right. You know, it just that doesn't happen. Right. And, and think about the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is my favorite memorial, that beautiful Daniel Chester French statue, and and having the Gettysburg Address on one wall and the second inaugural. First of all, they're short enough to fit on a wall. <laughs> um, and people can, people from all around the world come and read them and and, and, and are, are moved by these. And um, it, there are very few politicians who can do that. Mm hmm. So
0: now we move on to I, I, what might be, at least until relatively recently, one of the greatest outsized personalities in American political history, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, everybody's favorite, if, every political cartoonist's favorite president to draw, even long
1: after he's dead, right? Yes. Um, what does is, what is Teddy do to the presidency? Well, so uh, Teddy, and this is another theme of mine, he, he's, he studied his predecessors, just as Lincoln studied Jackson, and Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, sees himself as a disciple of Abraham Lincoln. He's really the next great Republican president after Abraham Lincoln. And Theodore Roosevelt, in part, wants to do what Abraham Lincoln did for the continent he wants to do for the hemisphere and perhaps for the world. He wants to be the arch a leader of a new moment of industrial capitalism, which he also defines as part of democracy uh, for the hemisphere and and the world. And That's one of the reasons he gets so involved in foreign affairs. Think about the Panama Canal as the extension of Lincoln's railroad to Central America, uh, providing a passageway. For products and people from one coast to the other, without having to go all the way around um, south Carolina, uh, South America um, and Theodore Roosevelt also um, believes that part of being this um, leader of an industrial capitalist economy means you have to uh, take a firmer role as the CEO in creating institutions. That bring out the best in the country, make it the most productive it can be, but also uh, improve the quality of life in the country. So he is the first progressive president in that he surrounds himself with all of these progressive reformers, people who are committed to being more rational, using government resources in more rational ways, in more enlightened ways, to make government serve the people, serve the economy, and serve the world better. He begins this actually long before he's president, working on civil service reform. Uh, he's part of the Civil Service Commission in the late 19th century that's created to reform the civil service. Um, when he begins that work, uh, a very large proportion of people working in the civil service are still illiterate. In fact, they create the first test. So you're, you're appointed to a job in the post office, not because your friend is politically connected, but because you could actually do the job. Right? And so um, this emphasis on rationality. He surrounds himself as president with many figures uh, like Jacob Reese, who had written about poverty, how the other half lives, uh, Jane Addams, a uh, settlement house movement, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, park design and urban architecture and urban planning, and really invests his energy in pushing for these reforms. To be implemented that will make the United States a more enlightened, progressive, uh, high quality of life place that will also be more powerful on the world stage. So, in that sense, he is our first modern president. He's the one who really resonates with a lot of the language and a lot of the sort of uh, boisterous and bullying behavior that we come to come to accept and sometimes even expect in presidents.
0: And what about how does how does T. R. think globally? And how does he think about the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, so he sees the United States as a rising power by virtue of its enlightenment, by virtue of its democracy, by virtue of its resources. And he wants the United States to be able to flex its muscles overseas. And he's worried that we're going to be locked out of areas like Asia that are very important to us, or that we're going to have a rising number of enemies on our shores. Uh, Here, he's worried about the collapse of Spanish power in Cuba and elsewhere and the rise of both German and British activities in that region. So he wants the United States to be more stronger to assert itself. We should be enlightened and muscled at the same time. He wants the United States to be respected. And he wants the United States not to go to war all the time, though he's happy to go to war sometimes, uh, but to be a mediator. Uh, he believes in a in a, a world of great powers and a world of balance of power politics, and he believes in diplomacy. And And there's so many things we can associate with all those things. So he does support military activity for the United States to prohibit Spanish continuance in Cuba and the Philippines and replace them with American authority rather than British or German authority. He helps to negotiate uh, a settlement to the Russo-Japanese War for which he receives a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, And um, he builds and uh, flaunts the Great White Fleet, this American Navy. he'd He'd come out of the Navy, he'd written about the Navy, he had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy. The Great White Fleet, not to mistakenly name the Great White Fleet, It sails around the world. It's still inferior to the British or German navies, but he's showing that we've come of age. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt didn't seek to rule the world. He didn't seek to fight wars everywhere. He sought for the United States to be one of the great powers in the world and for us to use that status to have more and more influence in the capitalist and humanitarian and democratic development of the world as he sought. He believed this was part of the spread of civilization, and that's the phrase he used quite often, civilization.
0: And does that take with the successors, especially in terms of foreign policy, this is starting to move pretty far away from Washington's farewell address, at least in the minds of many Americans. Yes. But there's a shift that you detect there after Roosevelt, the first Roosevelt. Yes,
1: yes, yes. I think, I think I'm one of many historians to write about the Roosevelt presidency as, as a sea change, as you say, in America's presence in the world. And again, talking about the biography of institutions. It, it, once you build it, it's hard to unbuild it, right? Once, once you make yourself part of a larger world system, it's hard to pull yourself out of it and remain separate from it. But TR also continues to make the argument that the United States is going to do things differently from the rest of the world. So you get this fusion of sometime imperial-like behaviors by the United States, but a, a, a deep anti-imperialism within the way we think about our imperial behaviors. And uh, the great historian William Appleman Williams, decades ago, referred to this as American imperial anti-imperialism. And, and there is something to that. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you can, I don't want us to get, you know, to run ahead too fast, but you can see that in a lot of what happened. You can see that in Iraq, uh, where, where we show up and we're acting uh, in TR fashion, uh, right, as, as a big power trying to eliminate uh, a regime that we argue is standing in the way of appropriate modern development. Uh, but at the same time, we're not going to act like a colonial power. We're not going to invest in, in in major transformation. We're going to expect that's going to naturally come out of the ground. So we're imperial, anti-imperial rather than just one or the other. Was, uh, yeah. Williams hit upon a really useful framework there, I think.
0: So moving next to his to TR's cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, everybody likes to talk about how much the New Deal changed expectations around American government. Where do you see that change going on here?
1: Well, I I call um, Franklin Roosevelt in my chapter, uh, the great national healer. I, I think he's the greatest president we've ever had. I think Lincoln's the most fascinating figure. I think Washington is the, is the absolute necessary one. We wouldn't have gotten off the ground without him. He's the true founder. But Franklin Roosevelt is the great president, and, and, and this is the, uh, part of the argument of the book. Um, he's the zenith of the presidency, and it's from the zenith that we decline very fast, uh, in part because we've reached this height. It's almost as if we get to this extraordinary height We're at the top of Everest and the air is too thin. Uh, and so we start to fall of our own weight. Uh, thereafter, uh, what does the New Deal do? Uh, most fundamental of all, it connects this powerful institution that, as we've talked about, does so much more for economic development, for military security, and it connects it to ordinary people. Uh, it's a different presidency and it's a different world. Before Franklin Roosevelt, most Americans did not think the president was an important part of their lives. During Roosevelt's presidency, he became an important part of everyone's life, even those who didn't like him. Uh, This shows up overwhelmingly in the oral histories of the period. Roosevelt came into people's homes. And part of it's the radio. Part of it is this man's incredible ability to empathize with people so different from himself. And and this is what I learned from Franklin Roosevelt. um, You know, uh, leadership, the most important quality is empathy. Can you convince people who are different from you that you, in, in, in Bill Clinton's terms, feel their pain? Can you feel other people's pain? People don't actually want you to tell them what to do or give them the answers. They want to feel validated and then they're willing to work with you. Uh, leadership is more coaching than it is dictating. And uh, Roosevelt is the master at that. He uses the office to surround himself with people who will help him understand the suffering of others. He uses his language to articulate authentically that he understands. And then he pursues what he calls bold experimentation, or in another phrase, he says he throws jelly at the wall to uh, try every way he can to help limit the suffering, to heal the suffering of others. He's the medicine man. And it's terribly inefficient, and it causes debt, and more programs fail than succeed. But it's this process and the courage behind this that gets us to some of our most successful programs uh, in turning our country around and preparing ourselves for war. Take something like the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, Millions of Americans, young Americans between 18 and 30, um, end up uh, going and living in camps and building uh, pathways in national parks, planting trees. Not only does it get them off the streets, not only does it get them a sense of public service, um, it it gives them uh, belonging. It gives them pride. It gives them lessons in cooperation. And you then read these oral histories of these same men serving in World War II. The CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was their preparation.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> it's telling that I mean, even today, um, a lot of states actually still have CCC <laughs> programs. I know yes. Alaska does, off the top of my head, and it, it, even in Roosevelt's <laughs> presidency, it was actually something that had genuine bipartisan support. I mean,
1: even Can even I- other people. Who Oppose other parts of the New Deal, we're pretty okay with the CCC. That's right. But the other interesting thing is this was not an idea that Franklin Roosevelt concocted himself. It was not something he had ever participated in himself. It came to him from his willingness to listen to others, bring ideas around him. And in this sense, he's like Theodore Roosevelt, invest his office in these new ideas. And what does he do globally? Well, this system, this New Deal system, as we've just described it, um, he makes the case that that's the solution to fascism and communism, that communism and fascism are diseases, diseases of uh, Lincoln's capitalism run amok, that capitalism by its nature, uh, this is Joseph Schumpeter's argument, right? It's creative destruction, that it creates a lot, but it destroys a lot. And they're always losers. I'm I'm a capitalist myself, but I always remind students, every capitalist system has made some people richer and some people poor. There's no capitalist system that ever has made everyone richer. And those who are left behind uh, are often maimed and harmed, deeply harmed uh, by this, this, this system. He argues, Roosevelt, as many others did at the time, that fascism and communism play to those damaged bodies and damaged souls, or the fear of that damage. And they promise people that they don't have to make the hard choices and that everyone will be all right and that the dictator will decide for them or the party will decide for them. Roosevelt argues that the United States to protect democracy, to protect its system, it has to invest in underlying New Deal reforms overseas. That's not the same as the United States taking over other countries, but it's about creating institutions, we're back to institutions here, institutions that do some of this work. And Roosevelt is the great international institution builder. United Nations comes out of Roosevelt, mm-hmm. World Bank, IMF, uh, what soon becomes the GATT system of excuse me of world trade and the world trade organization declaration of human rights it's all there in the atlantic charter and various other elements of roosevelt's activities not creating american dominance per se but creating a new deal for the world an alternative to the rough and tumble capitalist systems that he believed were also producing fascism and communism
0: now with these five case studies i'm i was curious reading the book do you get any sense that the expectations of the public or in popular culture change around the presidency was sort of after these, these exemplary sort of case studies come along, you know, once Roosevelt comes along the second Roosevelt, then everybody expects a much more activistic government and executive branch.
1: That's exactly right. Um, in, in some ways the presidency for its first 150 years becomes the victim of its own successes because people expect it, expect, expect it to accomplish all the things it's accomplished, but they're angry about the cost and the things they don't like. So they, 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 they want the outcome without the, the sweat equity. <laughs> um, and this is particularly true for the New Deal. Um, anyone who's looked at the New Deal, who studied it, um, generally sees a lot of success, but also sees a lot of failure. And 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 every failure is wasted money, right? So what people want is they want all the successes without the failures, right? Like the <laughs> students of mine who want A's, you know, and and believe you can write an A paper. I always say you can't write an A paper. You've got to write a paper that has to be heavily edited, and you better edit it before you give it to me if you want an A, right? It's right. the same thing here, um, and and this is why this is perhaps a side issue, but I'll say it anyway. This is why this sort of cult of efficiency is 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 so damaging. Uh, you know, the, the real work, the real work of politics is not efficient. It's inefficient. Um, that's not a justification for waste, but um, it's its an art and it's about getting ahead by trying lots of different things. Um, we succeed so well in so many areas that we forget about all the failures that were necessary along the line. And when we see those failures again, we don't invest in them uh, because we forget what it really takes. Mm. So what happens after Franklin Roosevelt then? What do his successors have to contend with? Well, I think Roosevelt can just barely hold it all together. Uh, uh, By early 1945, before his death, He really is president of the world. Uh, We're the only ones left standing. Uh, The Soviet Union wins the war as much as we do, if not even more. Uh, But they've lost almost their entire industrial capacity, as well as 30 million citizens. Uh, We've lost 500,000. That's a lot. But it's nowhere near the loss of the Soviet Union. And uh, our other competitors, Germany, France – Japan, they're completely devastated. I mean, truly devastated in every way. Um, So Roosevelt is the only person with a sustainable vision. He's the only person with resources, really. And he's taken on now all of these commitments, and therein lies the problem. It's not simply that the expectations of the president at home are so much greater. They're so much greater overseas. And uh, every president after Roosevelt until the current one uh, tries to be Roosevelt uh, many of them are equally talented, uh, but they fail because they're taking on too much. And I, and I want to be clear about this because it's been sometimes misunderstood in some reviews of the book. You know, I'm not arguing for a smaller government or bigger government. I'm arguing for government aligning its resources with its purposes better. And that involves choosing priorities and that involves allocating resources to them. The problem presidents will have after Roosevelt is that the number of priorities will multiply, the number of pressures will multiply, and they will spread themselves too thin. That's not a problem of small government or big government, that's a problem of uh, absent focus. And uh, I try to show this in the book. Uh, Roosevelt, as busy as he is, as many things as he's doing, his calendar, and I love calendars of presidents, I reprint some in the book. You can see in his calendar, he's able to cluster the issues. He's able to bring the issues together and focus on priorities and put his time behind his priorities. That is lost with presidents thereafter who, quite frankly, are managing a world and managing a complex country and never get the time to do the thinking, the leadership work and the creativity that's necessary for effective leadership thereafter.
0: That is interesting to think about. You know, one of the things that I was so struck by was the extent to which that president of the world phenomenon that you mentioned, Franklin Roosevelt. um, Once other presidents have to grapple with that, how efficient can they really be in office? And was there ever a way that we could have avoided that?
1: Yes. Yes. I think um, one of the uh, real missed opportunities in the post-war period Um, is to uh, be more careful about defining where our interests are in the world and where they are not. Mm -hmm. One of the big mistakes we make is to come to believe, particularly after the Korean War, because, I mean, in the Korean War, I think, is the turning point in the Cold War. we, We really come to believe that communism anywhere is something we need to stop at all costs. And uh, that overstretch, that sort of ridiculous domino theory, I mean, you think about this idea that, that we had a theory about dominoes to explain the world, really? <laughs> we couldn't do better than that? Um, that that kind of overstretch, as Paul Kennedy calls it, um, that, that really that that um, makes it very difficult for us to make the hard choices and invest where we need to. Thankfully, after World War II, we're able to make some of those investments, but it becomes harder and harder. Uh, and by the 1970s, I mean, my undergraduates find it uh, – Hard to rec- understand not only Vietnam I mean we 're fighting in Angola all of a sudden. Angola has become this important area of the United States, the Cubans, the russians the chinese we 're all fighting in Angola, and <laughs> you wonder, what are we fighting over here and there's, maybe we 've forgotten, but because the bad guys are there we 've got to be there too. Mm-hmm. Um, So that kind of what I would say is exactly the problem here, a powerful presidency becoming a log-rolling institution, trying to please as many people as possible rather than serving the national interest. uh, That becomes the problem. And and sometimes government is too small and that's what's creating this, right? Because we don't have enough investment in the things we really care about. So we try to do too many other small things rather than the few big things. And why is it that we can't walk back
0: after the Cold War ends, I mean, everybody can agree that Americans become just obsessed with communism, and they always sort of had been, but it gets much worse after 1945. But in theory, that's that's not a problem after 1989. So why is it that we're still seeing
1: the same behavior? Well, I think it's a great question. Um, I think there are two reasons why. Uh, one is about legacies. Um, we've inherited these commitments. And it's very hard to undo commitments. For another project I worked on with some other scholars, we tried to find evidence of times when the United States had um, uh, inherited a commitment and said that it was no longer going to fulfill it. And, and it's very rare we do that. We, mm-hmm. we just keep adding commitments on. It's like a departments in a university. You never close one. You just keep adding more. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It's a new idea. We'll add a new department, which usually is a good idea. But maybe you should think about reforming some of the old ones. Right? It, it, we, we become additive rather than uh synthesizing in, in in these areas and and after the cold war there's a tendency to do that um in part and this is the second reason because we don't know what we're about anymore our organizing principle in the international system uh, has really gone away we don't have a communist adversary and if we don't know what you're about the easiest thing to do is to just try to do everything better <laughs> and so i think our policy the way to understand foreign policy from Nineteen ninety-one to two thousand and one, and is uh, we go around the world saying anything you can do, we can do better.
0: But then on the flip side of it, being too afraid of doing too much, as you point out with Clinton in Rwanda, is just like a fantastic ex- example in this book because, especially in the wake of Somalia, he finds okay, if, if he if he overreacts here, he's just going to open himself up to endless backlash at home.
1: Yes, He, he yes.
0: you know, just seems to be caught between impossible demands at any given moment.
1: Fitting. Right. right. and so that, That's exactly right. And he, he feels he's, fa- he's failed where he's been involved. So he's going to try to stay uninvolved in the face of genocide and pretend genocide is not happening, even though we have an international obligation to intervene when there's genocide. It's the Genocide Convention that Ronald Reagan signed. And so um, he, he, he's not actually cutting back on what we do. He's trying to do it in ways that are less costly and military intervention is too costly for him now. And so he's looking for costless ways, but he never, um, he never comes out and says, you know, this is a part of the world, perhaps, where we shouldn't be involved, or a part of the world where we can't do the things we wanted to do before. He doesn't adjust expectations. He just denies that there's a problem, right? That's the really chilling part of Rwanda, is the way he pretends it's not a problem when, of course, it is. Mm. So uh, we, we've,
0: uh, you've noted an interesting paradox, as you go through the book, that the expectations are on the one hand, killing the job, and it's making it far too difficult for any human being to do this, no matter how much energy or brilliance they can bring to the job. But then the subsequent failure just leads to more demands for somebody who can fix it, which maybe is how we got to Trump, but you could also work that backwards to Obama. How do we dig ourselves
1: out of this hole? well that's the that's the hard question and um uh, I'm better on diagnosing problems than offering solutions. My wife would agree on that too by the way, about her diagnosis of me um uh, i I think first of all um we've got to understand the problem uh and we've got to understand that the problem is 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 not only about the capabilities and personality of the person in office that if tomorrow uh we had whoever someone thinks is the most ideal person, you know, the LeBron James or Kevin Durant of presidents, uh, the Michael Jordan, you know, Babe Ruth, whatever it is, um, uh, what I'm arguing is they would fall flat on their face too. There's a structural problem, there's an institutional problem going back to where we started. And it's not going to be fixed by individuals alone. Now, don't get me wrong, the individual still matters, the person driving the car matters. But the point here is that we have a problem with the engine, the way the engine has evolved over time and how the roads have changed and the engine doesn't work on the roads we're driving on anymore, no matter who the driver is, right? A Model T is not going to win a race now, no matter if you get the best best driver for it. Mm -hmm. And so we need to start thinking about doing what, in fact, we did when it was easier, when we were smaller in the first half of the book, the first 150 years. Where we adjusted and reformed our institutions, the presidency by Roosevelt's time was an institutionally different president, unimaginable from the institution George Washington inherited. Washington would not recognize Roosevelt's presidency mm-hmm. and and yet we've remained stuck in the institutions we've we've come to fetishize these institutions, and we need to have some serious thought which we can do um, about how to reform these institutions as we also look for better people to put in them to better serve the world that we're in. Um, one point I make at the end of the book is uh, just the volume of what presidents have to deal with should lead us to question whether one person could ever do this. And that wasn't a problem for Washington. It wasn't even a problem for Lincoln. Lincoln had a really tough job, but he, you know he still had a relatively small range of issues to deal with. Uh, Today, um, we have gone from being, in a sense, the uh, founding model society for democracy to being a backwater in that we're the only country, only major democracy in the world that has a single executive. Um, Most others, you know, divide authority between a prime minister who comes out of the legislature, of course, but plays an executive role and a president. That's what Germany does. That's what France does. That's what India does. Uh, why do we think, with you know, we can find this one person to do what, what they don't think one person can do in Germany alone, which is a much smaller country? Um, so that's just one example of many places where I think we need to have creative thinking about our institutions and enter into institutional reform. And and we go through these phases in our society. I think we're going to get into one of these. I think that's what young people want to do. Mm. Look how innovative, for good and bad, we've been in other areas. Why can't we do that in our politics?
0: There was one there was one point you made that I I wanted to not push back on, but I just I'm looking for clarification myself because I I agree with it. Um, You you say that one thing that continues to bog down presidents and it has at this point since Roosevelt is this tendency to get wrapped up in uh, divisive cultural issues. And it it just saps their strength. I mean, talk about Lilliputian. You know, the other at the other end of it we did have a president, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, who was able to confront what an issue that none of his predecessors wanted to deal with. And he actually was at least able to force through part of a solution. If it didn't please everybody, in hindsight, we can all agree it it did something demonstrably good. It, it was divisive. It made good government difficult. But how, how do we reconcile those two? How do we give the president space to be able to act in the common good and, and take a difficult stand without then letting himself get tied up into knots on potential nothing issues?
1: Fantastic question. And there's no doubt I, I make this point in the book. I think, it's, I, I, I think it's hard to argue against this in any way. Uh, Lyndon Johnson does more for civil rights um, than any president had done since Lincoln mm-hmm. in his time. And The Civil Rights Act of 64 would not not have looked anything nearly as expansive as it was if John F. Kennedy had lived. Um, In fact, Johnson uses Kennedy's tragic death to um, cajole and manipulate people into supporting uh, what what is a landmark piece of legislation. Absolutely right. Um, uh, Basically, the end of segregation is not Brown v. Board, right? It is the 64 Act. Mm -hmm. That's actually when the University of Texas, my institution, integrates. Students can't believe this. We we were a segregated institution really until then. It wasn't that you know university presidents and restaurant owners all of a sudden decided that you know okay now we'll let blacks in, right? It was actually the federal government forced them to do this. Mm -hmm. So we need presidents to do that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, That's not the kind of cultural issue I'm talking about. The the problem is we've come to look to presidents to take stands on cultural issues to reaffirm our particular beliefs, Mm -hmm. even when there isn't a public policy, a necessary public policy issue attached to it. Uh, And I do think abortion is a good example here. I think it's very different. When we're talking about with civil rights. Uh, people can have their own views on you know whether abortion should be legal or not or protected. I have my views. People can have their own views. I'm not an expert on this. But I don't think the president has anything to do with this. Uh, this is not a presidential uh, decision. This is not within the range of the president. The president's not by saying anything going to make this change. The president doesn't decide this. So why bother? Why bother getting involved in that debate? That's only symbolic politics. That's only a, a distraction from the real work. There are controversial issues presidents need to speak on. I think, for example, reforming our healthcare system. Mm. Again, I'm not an expert on this, but our healthcare system is destroying us. It's ineffective. It eats up our GDP. It reinforces inequality. I don't know what the solution is, but that's something presidents probably should work on. And they should stop talking about abortion and start talking about that.
0: <laughs> Very good. I I felt like I could talk with you about the about this book for a few hours, but we do have to wrap it up. So I wanted to ask one last question. What are you working on
1: right now? So I'm starting, and I'm in a very early stage, I'm starting a book on uh, America since 9-11. And what I want to look at, it, it, it follows perfectly from the last question you asked, the intersection between politics and political culture in our society. And why is it that our political culture has gone into the toilet? And what about the decisions after 9-11 that took us into the toilet? And of course, what are the ways we can come out of the toilet? (laughs) Um, And I really do think uh, and the Iraq war is one of these things. A set of decisions we made, uh, not by evil people, actually, um, but decisions that were driven by power, driven by anger, driven by selfishness, driven by ignorance, uh, took us down a road um, to where we are today. And um, we need to revisit those decisions in order to do better going forward. So sort of America from 9-11 to Trump.
0: Wonderful. I'll look forward to it. Thank you so
1: much, Dr. Suri, for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. This, is, this has been a wonderful interview, and I really appreciate the high quality of your questions. Thank you so much.